This is the Cognitive History Podcast, where we explain historical events in order to understand their importance. The less heard of, the better. Without further ado, let's get into exploring the obscure. everyone welcome back as always i am your host kevin and with me is my co-host logan hello everyone so logan how have you been in the two weeks since our last episode pretty amazing oh yeah oh yeah no work this week just been chilling see what happens you you allow people to not work for a little bit and they become happy again yeah but uh yeah so i have uh been busy sounds like it yeah uh so lots of research uh because the topic today is very hard to get actual research done for and in spite of all the research i've done my notes for this week are very much shorter so if you're a smarty pants and you know everything that we've covered so far here's where we get into the obscure yes um but in addition to doing lots of research i also have been doing marriage paperwork and I climbed Mount Fuji, and nice. Uh, never again. No, it's. Mm-mm. I was sore for like the entire week this past <laughs> week. It so definitely a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah, the only way I would contemplate maybe doing it again is going up a different trail. Hmm. But uh, the one we went up was the most popular trail. And uh, oh, God. So they say it takes you seven hours to reach the top. But we took so many breaks, it took us 10. Wow. Yeah. I'm not proud of that length. But yeah, it took us 10 hours. Coming back down that would drag on me. Oh, you! Whoa! Well, can we talk about that? Because that was really bad. Like constant, constant switchbacks at a not insignificant angle for mm. four hours. <laughs> yeah, it's it was bad. Mm. Giving you flashbacks to growing up near Stone Mountain. Oh God! No, Stone Mountain is a cakewalk compared to Fuji. Like, God. <laughs> But, For those that don't know, Mount Fuji is actually a mountain. Stone Mountain is a giant rock of granite. Well, I mean, if you want to get into the technicalities, then uh, Mount Fuji is a volcano. But Real mountain. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of arguing semantics. <laughs> it's an island-forming mountain. 
Welcome to episode eight, where for four minutes we go on talking about hiking. Hey, geography is also part of history. I mean, you're not wrong, but it's also a very different kind of history. It is. Uh, yes, today we're going to be talking about the Ordovician period. <laughs> See, that doesn't sound right for this podcast, does it? Not at all. No. Let's keep it to language and people. Yeah, I I like doing I like doing that. Uh, there's only so much talking about jawless fishes that I could do. No, oh, we did bring up hot springs. Okay, now we're just going on and on about this. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna drag I'm, it out. No, no, we're done. We're done with that. <laughs> so. To catch everyone up on where we actually are, for the past month and a half, we've been doing Christianity in Japan, as you can tell from the episode titles. But, so, when we last left off, we had seen the Shimabara Rebellion. And that ended with all of the rebels being executed by the state and their ringleader Amaxashiro's head being presented on a pike in Nagasaki to show what happens when you lead an armed rebellion against the government as well it's amazing how universal the head on a pike is uh, yeah isn't it though it is I mean from William Wallace to Amaxashiro to Game of Thrones. Yeah, we it's even everywhere. get in fiction now, too. Yeah. But, Moving on up. Um, also, the daimyo of the Shimabara domain was also executed by the state. And because of the rumor of foreign influence involving or being involved in this rebellion, you had the removal of everyone from Japan who is a foreigner, except for being able to trade with China and the Dutch, particularly speaking out of Nagasaki. Mm. So that's where... Thus the isolation begins. Yes, the Sakoku, as it is called. Which, roughly translated, is closed country. So, but before we get into stuff with that, I want to show another example of a religion in Japan that was made illegal and despite that is still around and with that an example of one that was made illegal and is no longer around so logan have you ever heard of the religions of shugendo or onmyodo can honestly say I have not. Okay. So, 
on Miodo personally is the more interesting one to me. I did a an essay for one of my classes about it. But on Miodo is also the one that no longer exists in today's world. It's probably why I find it more interesting. So uh, on Miodo is typically said as being traditional Japanese mysticism or shamanism. It's not really mm. shamanistic, but um, so on Miodo is on Miodo and Shugendo are both syncretic religions. So they're amalgamations of local folk customs, Buddhism, Shintoism. In the case with Onmyodo, you also have some, uh, some Confucianism in there. Interesting. Um, Onmyodo is kind of like feng shui in a way. It's... Um, if you've ever watched any anime that has, um, God, what's his name? I can't remember. Um, mm. But basically, <laughs> a summoner or a shaman, they have their um, little servants made out of paper. Mm -hmm. So... It's really hard to define on Miodo because it's really hard to find materials on it. But basically, on Miodo became really involved with like fortune telling and stuff like that. And they even had a governmental office for practitioners of on Miodo. And. On the other hand, Shugendo, it's typically like it's a mountain hermit religion. The main point in it was uh, mountain worship from Shinto. So that mixing with Buddhism started in the 7th century, but unlike on Myodo, it became very independent of the government. Hmm. So there was no governmental office for Shugendo. But around the time of the Meiji Revolution, which is a point we'll get into later, this is kind of foreshadowing for what's going to happen with Christianity. You had something called the Shinbutsu Bunni which is the separation of Shinto from Buddhism, which is a lot of thing most people, or a lot of thing. Okay, I can talk today. <laughs> it's a thing that most people don't really know is that Buddhism and Shintoism were kind of one body in Japan for a long time. Right, I always thought they were inseparable in Japanese culture. Yeah, it's, I don't know when they kind of joined, but 
they officially separated with the Shinbutsu Bunni in the Meiji Revolution around 1872 is when all these other syncretic religions were made illegal as part of the separation of Shinto and Buddhism. Mm. And so I don't know why they were made illegal specifically, but the Meiji government ruled that they were unacceptable because they were an amalgamation of Shinto and Buddhism. So they were made fully illegal in 1872. And sounds counterintuitive. Yeah, just a little. But so on Miodo, because it had developed into something that relied so much on the government. Mm. it died pretty hard and quick. Like, you don't have it it going underground at all. It just dies. Mm. Shugendo, on the other hand, because it was not reliance on the government, and because it's a mountain hermit religion, Guess what you don't really have in up in the mountains? Government. Yeah. So Shugendo managed to have its secret practitioners for the 73 years that it was fully illegal until religious freedom in Japan came about after World War II. And after that point, Shugendo revives. And it's actually, um, I wouldn't say it's popular, but you can see Shugendo practitioners at a lot of festivals in Japan. Interesting. Yeah. So that shows how, like, even though something can be made fully illegal in Japan, it can still hang on. And that's going to be what ends up happening with Christianity in Japan. In spite of being illegal for way longer than Shugendo. Mm -hmm. We're talking 200 and some odd years. I mean, the Sakoku itself lasts 210 years. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in the beginning, Christianity was illegal for about 300 and some odd years in the Roman Empire. I'm not sure when Constantine took over. but I can't remember precisely, but I, I want to say it was in the 4th century. Wouldn't be too surprising if it was, but you, yeah. you're drawing a very good parallel. Mm -hmm. But so before we draw too hard of a parallel, let's uh, actually start getting into things because I think I've painted the writing on the wall pretty hard for how things are going to go. 
So, oh, just just uh, right before we do that, yeah, Constantine was emperor from three hundred six to three thirty seven. Okay, so yeah, about roughly three hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, starting in sixteen thirty nine, I said the right number this time. Yay! So, starting in sixteen thirty nine, Christianity. Had already been illegal for 20 some odd, almost 30 years by this point. But it had clung on in the shadows in spite of a lot of martyrs being made. And after the Shimabara Rebellion, 1639, Japan hard closes to everyone except China and the Dutch and only for trade. Mm. So. Christianity. So basically, no, like, no permanent residence or anything. You can go to the harbor and then leave. Yeah, I mean, even, even the um, the uh, the modern term is hafu. I forget what the old term would be, but the half Japanese, half X um, children mm. were forced out, like. Oh, the, wow. Like the half Japanese, half port, half, half Portuguese children, they mm-hmm. were sent out on a ship to Macau. Wow. Yeah, like they they are done even entertaining the notion of any sort of foreigner living in Japan. But so, yeah, with all of this, Christianity has to go and be practiced in secret and that's where you see the birth of japan's hidden christians or karakure sorry not kara sorry kakure kirishitan Mm. it's literally hidden christian and to make sure christianity wasn't going to be practiced in public the japanese government specifically the Tokugawa shogunate, starts imposing more hard lines for things that everybody has to do. So, like, you have to register at a local temple. Mm -hmm. And you have to, like, verify your registration at that temple every year. And part of that is a yearly test of stepping on the fumie that bronze picture of Jesus, Mary, or a saint. Mm-hmm. So now not only is it people coming into Japan, it's everybody living in Japan. I, I'm assuming that this isn't done much in areas that don't typically have much of a historic christian population right because if you go to like a very traditionalist area they're just gonna think it's stupid yeah like if you're doing this up in hokkaido which doesn't really have anything to do with christianity historically there's basically no point Mm -hmm. it's like forcing your dog to get a rabies vaccine if you live in japan iceland hawaii Somewhere that doesn't have rabies. 
getting snake insurance in Ireland. Yeah. Um, but if you're doing this in like Nagasaki, perfect. That's where the hotbed of Christianity was. But so, yeah, that this is obviously going to put a strain on anybody who wants to practice as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so you start seeing Christians practicing in secret with um, like preaching in caves or forests. Forests were popular because you could make a little mound of dirt that you could use as basically a makeshift pulpit. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting because they were already used to not having priests around that much. So it was a little easy to adapt for laymen to take over uh, preaching and reciting scripture. One of the problems with reciting scripture, though, is the fact that they didn't really have any. Yeah. So without really having scripture you have to memorize it and pass it down as an oral tradition. Which is playing telephone. Yeah. And so with, with no priests, no real scripture, and you're playing telephone, let's, let's get back to uh, Shugendo and Onmyodo with... Uh, Syncretism. You uh, you get a lot of that in Kakure Christianity. So, mm-hmm. like, obviously, reverence towards Deus is still going to be the main point, but they also started to revere the Christian martyrs and the ancestors of the uh, Kakure Kurishitan. Mm. So like if their own saints. Yeah, basically. Like if you're say like a fourth generation hidden Christian, you're not just going to have reverence for the standard things in Christianity. You're going to develop reverence for like your great great grandfather who was martyred for Christianity or your grandfather who, you know, was a priest of sorts for this religion. Right. And so that's a bit of a Confucian element also, because if you're not familiar with Confucianism, there's a lot of ancestor worship in Confucianism. Makes sense. Yeah. And, Confucianism was never really popular in Japan, but elements of it did remain. Like anything, you take the good ideas, the ones you agree with, and absorb them. Yeah. So, I I thought that was a little interesting, that you see Christianity start to 
warp a little bit and they start developing their own practices. What all of those practices are, I don't know, because as we'll see with this, we're talking about something hidden, so it's hard to do research. It's hard to find out. None of this is written down because Mm -hmm. if it was written down, it could be found and the practitioners of it could be put to death. And we saw what happened the last time you had Christian practitioners go out into the public. They, yeah. they tried for a war, they lost, and they all died. As much as you might idolize the martyrs, there's still a fear of death. Exactly. And one of the other things that I found really interesting with this was... Um, since we are still talking about them, you know, worshiping in secret, some Christians, I'm assuming the really rich ones, would have secret panels in their house to hide ladders, which would take them up into essentially the attic. And you would have like a private church up in there where you could fit like maybe like three or four people. Wow. Yeah. So, interesting. So kind of like the priest holes, but for an altar. Yeah, essentially. So, like, interesting and um, ingenious, in a way. Yeah. But, so, in addition to doing things like that and, you know, worshipping in private, in secret, they would hide Christian symbols in other religious objects. So you would disguise, for instance, in Japanese Buddhism, you have a figure called Canon, um, which Mm. is actually where the photography company Canon gets their name from. But so she is she uh a bodhisattva which is Mm. for the unfamiliar a bodhisattva is a figure in buddhism that has attained enlightenment but chosen to remain outside of nirvana in order to help guide others to enlightenment and their therefore nirvana the dalai lama for example Yes, uh, the Dalai Lama would be an example of a tangible bodhisattva. Right. And so you, there are a lot of bodhisattvas in Buddhism. But canon is interesting because technically speaking, canon is genderless, but depending on where you are, canon or guanyin, if you're in China, is given a gender. So typically Canon is female Mm. and she's known as like the mother of compassion and the mother of rebirth. She has a lot of things that she does 
and so because she's called the mother of compassion, it's not uncommon to see her depicted in a relief with a child. You're seeing where this is going. That, yeah, you're taking that iconography and turning that into Mama Mary. Exactly. And so you couldn't say that it was the Virgin Mary, though. Mm-hmm. You had to disguise it. So we, you get this term, uh, Maria Canon. So officially speaking, it was just a new sort of depiction of canon. But mm-hmm. to the Kakure Krisitan, it's the Virgin Mary. So you have stuff like that. You have Buddhist sutras that are written in the shape of a cross, which I don't know how you do, but you do it. Um, <laughs> you have crosses with Buddha in the middle. Um, if you're practicing your religion a bit more out in the open than others, you disguise the Latin or Portuguese into having the same patterns, the same tempo as Buddhist chants. Mm. So while people can't really understand what you're saying, it sounds like you're just doing a typical Buddhist chant or you're reciting a Buddhist sutra. So like you can, you could just say if you're confronted that, no, no, you misheard me. This is what I was saying. Because temporally, mm-hmm. it's the same. And how many people in Japan know Latin? Uh, not a whole lot. You could probably count on like your hands and toes. Outside of these Christians, <laughs> how many of them yeah. know Latin? So if they hear omnipotente deus rex regum, they have no idea what it's... Right, and you could uh, you could easily describe that as namu amitabutsu. Mm-hmm. Like the word, the wording isn't that far off either. But yeah, so you have stuff like that. You also have um, hidden second funerals because obviously, in a Buddhist country, you have Buddhist funeral rites. But having a sutra recite for you at your funeral, Christians thought would uh, disrupt their ability to go to heaven. So at the same time, they would have someone doing Christian funeral rites for the departed off somewhere else. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's a little odd, but they were doing all that they could for their perceived salvation. I note, I'm not trying to malign Christianity. I'm saying perceived salvation because I myself am not Christian. It's really difficult when you're covering specifically religion in historical terms. Yeah. Because, you know, while I am already separated from it, I have to fully try and 
um, neuter the subject from religion, despite the fact that what I'm talking about is religion. Agreed. So, yeah, because the area around Nagasaki and Kyushu in general was the hotbed of Christianity, most of the hidden Christians are in islands and getaways around Nagasaki. And you're really far away from the government up in Edo. You're literally yeah. half the country away. You're on a completely separate island too. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit easier to practice there. It's easier to hide. Um, but there are pockets of Christianity outside of Kyushu. So, for example, in or on Himeji Castle, which is located in Hyogo, which is near Kyoto, there was apparently a cross that was found on one of the roof tiles instead of the typical, um, I can't remember the term for it, but you see it in like Naruto, it's like the spiral pattern. Mm hmm. Um, but yeah, there is a cross. So someone at some point who is replacing roof tiles on on Himeji Castle put a cross <laughs> on there for some reason. So like, and obviously the only reason you would have to put a cross on there is if you're Christian. Well, that's funny. Yeah. But so this is where we get into this being hard to discuss. There's. I don't have much in the way of research for this, but so this hidden state continues until 1853. So over 200 years, the entire time that the Sakoku is happening, this state of affairs continues for Christians. But 1853, uh, is when com That's a long time to be playing telephone. Oh yeah. But so 1853 is when Commodore Matthew Perry comes to Japan. Good old Perry. I wouldn't say good old Perry. Well, he's not the guy from friends either. Hey, yeah, no, that is one of the things that always bothered me is like Matthew Perry is like the actor. No, no, not the actor. <laughs> But so he comes to Japan and he goes up into Tokyo Bay and he tells the government of Japan, hey, you're going to end this whole Sakoku thing, this not trading with anyone other than China and the Dutch. You're going to end that and you're going to trade with us, England and Russia. And you're gonna like it. Uh, I will give you one year to make a decision. I'm gonna come back after one year, and uh, if if you haven't decided to open the country, we're going to open cannon fire on you. It's 
it's not inventing gunboat diplomacy, but it's probably the most famous example of gunboat diplomacy. Yeah. And so he comes back in 1854 and Japan is just like, oh, yeah, no, we can't prepare for this. So we're going to open trade with the U.S., England, (laughs) and Russia, and we're going to like it. So, yeah, Japan after that was forced to rapidly modernize to prevent that sort of thing from happening again. And rapidly modernize they did. Uh, After 1854, Japan sent ambassadors to a lot of different Western countries in order to get you know, foreign technology and foreign practices for things so that they could ramp up not only their military and their ability to defend themselves, but like production of things. So, uh, for example, there's a silk mill in Gunma Prefecture, which is northwest of Tokyo. And at this silk mill, they modernized the production of silk textiles in Japan by having a French man come to Japan and introduce French methods of doing things. And they combined that. And for a long time, silk from it's uh, the Tomioka silk mill Mm. silk from that mill was quickly produced higher quality than most elsewhere in the world. And so they still produce silk in the area and it's, it's world famous. It's I've actually been to it. That's why I can, you know, go over all of this. But so that's one example of them doing this. They also, this is where you, you see uh, the area where I live, the city of Yokosuka becoming a, major military area Hmm. which it still is to this day wow yeah but oh how the history we cover has personally affected you yeah no it's actually really cool there's a museum that goes over this um right outside of base that i've been to which is a reconstruction of a building that used to be on the base in Yokosuka, which is which was located on the hill right behind where I work. Wow. Yeah. It's well, eventually. Yeah, eventually history comes back and it hits like, oh, I've been there. It's it's really weird how it works out, but it does eventually always do that. Yeah. But so enough of the examples with all of these foreigners coming into Japan and them benevolently deciding to help this newly opened country. The Japanese Completely government benevolently. Pardon? Completely benevolent. Oh, they had monetary There's, benefits. There is no ulterior motive. I don't know what you're talking about. They definitely had monetary benefits, but <laughs> they're still being benevolent and helping this country out. 
Can't let the Dutch get everything. <laughs> oh my god. Is that controversial <laughs> to say? <laughs> Exclusive rights? What's that? That's against the United Nations treaties. The United Nations was way in the future from then. You're about 100 years See, they've too been, soon. They've been planning. They've been planning for over a hundred years oh my for god. those treaties. Oh my god! Any Dutch? Anyway, stop it! Stop <laughs> it! To oh my god! To our listeners in the Netherlands, Logan's thoughts don't speak for me. Hey, hey, hey! I love the Dutch. They're amazing, wonderful people. Okay. At any rate, with all of these foreigners in Japan, the Japanese government allows them to practice their religion freely. Because they're not Japanese citizens, you can't exactly impose Japanese law onto them also. So that's starting to loosen the religious restrictions, obviously. And before the Meiji Revolution comes around, you see churches being built in some places in Japan, mainly in Nagasaki. The most famous example is the Oda Church in Nagasaki, which was constructed in 1865. So 11 years after they allowed foreigners in, you start seeing churches being constructed because foreign clergymen were also being invited into Japan and with them being able to practice their religion freely. Oh, suddenly there are a lot of new Christians in the area. Weird how <laughs> that came about. Yeah. Just popped up out of nowhere. So it wasn't the religion, but it was foreign influences that start to lead to the Meiji revolution. And in 1867, I don't know why, uh, but Tokugawa Yoshinobu, who is the last Tokugawa shogun, resigns in 1867. And after that, you have this whole thing like, oh, are we going to have a new shogun? What's going on? And then we have the Boshin War the civil war of Japan. This is, this is where the Meiji revolution really goes into high gear. It's, you have Japanese nationalists who want the emperor reinstated as the head of the state. And then you have the other side who want the uh, shogunate to remain in power. The nationalists win and the emperor is reinstated as the head of the state. And with that, you suddenly have freedom of religion in 1871. Wow. So Christians are now allowed to freely, and more importantly, legally practice their religion, starting in 1871. 
which is really I'm weird kinda... considering that whole thing with 1872 is where Shugendo and Onmyodo became illegal, but that is entirely different. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised the emperor allowed freedom of religion. Yeah, I think it was mainly to... I mean, one, you already have a lot of foreign influence in Japan. You probably have some uh, mixed-race children being born as well. Yeah. But, I mean... But he also gains his authority from divine descent. Right. That is one of the really odd things. But I think it was mainly for the foreign audience that mm. this was done because some of these foreigners never leave Japan. They, wow. they continue collaborating with the Japanese government until they retire, they retire and die in Japan. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but so, yeah, with, with this being allowed, you had, a bunch of Christian communities come out of hiding. Like they were coming out of the trees, man. But <laughs> yeah, it, and not just in the Nagasaki area. You have them. You have like weirdly pocketed communities of Christians come out all over the country. And so with this, the Kakure Kurishitan hidden Christians suddenly become mukashi kirishitan. Mukashi meaning ancient. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why they felt the need to change the term, but well, may, I guess mainly the fact that they don't, they're not hidden anymore. Yeah. But they're also only like 200 years old. Yeah. So it's not exactly ancient. No. But... After that, you have a lot of... So, the the Catholic Church basically extended an olive branch like, hey, you know, thanks for keeping the fire going, but we do mm. not like all of this weird stuff you added in. Come back to the church if you get rid of that stuff. So a lot of Christians did. They shed the old syncretic ways and they rejoined the Catholic Church. No qualms. Hey, you did what you had to do. Welcome back. Right. But obviously there's there's kind of a point of pride in, yeah, we were able to keep this going for 200 years without help from y'all. And plus... You know, the struggle's kind of important to them. Yeah. So they, a lot of Christians don't shed the syncretic ways. They want to keep the local customs that they've developed. Because, I mean, that's also kind of important for a national identity, right? Absolutely. So they become known as Hanare Krishitan. Hanare meaning separated. So they like they're still Christians, obviously, but they are not part of the Catholic Church. They are separated from the Catholic Church. Mm. And so 
these Christians are primarily in the Urakami area and the Goto Islands around Nagasaki. And also during this time, you have Protestantism being introduced. And there's not really much of a story for that being introduced because there's no struggle for it. It was there. People they practiced got easy it. Route. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> but so and yeah, there's not really much story for here because there's no struggle anymore. And it's just, okay, cool. Japan has Christians now. For a long time until the, until World War II breaks out. At which point, like, they don't outlaw Christianity, but Christians are kind of uh, jeered at by the general population as, like, why are you mm. practicing this Western religion? We're at war with the West. Yeah. But that's pretty much all it amounts to. <laughs> just a little mild persecution. Yeah, just mild persecution. They're not being put to death. Nothing bad's happening to them. It's just, hey, guy no over there. No stepping on Fumier. Hmm? No stepping on Fumier. Yeah. Nothing like that. It's nothing bad at all. It's just you're jeered at a bit. And yeah, that's uh, after World War II. Japan develops a new constitution, which has religious freedom written into it. So everyone's free to practice their religion now. So Christians no longer struggle today. Uh, today, Christianity makes up 1.5% of the religious identity of Japan. Hmm. Which, it's it probably could be a little higher, but um, there is this thing with, like, Japan doesn't really like organized religion. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a pretty common joke that um, you're born Shinto and you're raised Shinto because you go to shrines for things. You get married as a Christian because it's more popular to have a Western style wedding nowadays. Mm. and you die a Buddhist because you always have Buddhist funeral rites out here as well as everyone's always cremated because they don't really have the room for an actual casket to go into the ground here. So it's all turned more secular cultural than yeah. religious in experience. Yeah. But yes, and so you don't have any persecution now. Although I do think Japan is also a bit scared of organized religion because of cults that come about 
like uh, mm-hmm. Om Shinrikyo, which I would like to cover in the future, but that's getting way more into true crime territory. <laughs> and we are not a true crime podcast. No. There are quite a few good ones out there. Yep. But there, there is one sad point to this. And because of Japan's aging population and mm. lack of interest in the younger generation, the communities of Hanare Krishitan are quite literally dying out. That's a shame. It really is. It's in spite of me not being Christian, any culture being lost because again, none of this is written down. Like they might not have a need to be hidden anymore, but because Mm -hmm. of everything being an oral tradition, they want to keep it that way. So we're you're losing culture entirely as these groups of Christians literally die off. Mm. It's awful. Agreed. Um, I would like to give a note out to one very important Japanese Christian though. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know, Japan actually took in Jewish refugees during World War II. But wait, says most people, they were part of the Axis. Yeah, a uh, fun thing about that whole tripartite pact is it was a treaty only in the way of, hey, don't attack us. We won't attack you. So general indifference. Yeah, it, it was literally just, hey, y'all do your thing. We'll do our thing. We're not going to mess with each other. Italy and Germany were closer allies because geographically, Italy and Germany are way closer to, to each other than they are to Japan. True. But, and they also had a, they also had closer ideologies to each other. Yeah. The government, like the government of Japan was very militaristic, but it was not fascist at the time. Yeah. And we can have a discussion on that later, but um, (laughs) yeah, they took in, Jewish refugees. And one prominent figure in them taking in Jewish refugees is a man by the name of, uh, I'm going to give him his name in the Japanese style, uh, Sugihara Chiyune. He was a Japanese diplomat serving as the vice consul to the Japanese Empire in Lithuania. In 1935, he had converted to Orthodox Christianity. Hmm. And so that was done while he was serving in China. 
so during World War II, he helped mm, approximately 6,000 Jewish refugees escape from Europe and go to Japanese territory. So not Japan itself, maybe like China or Korea. Japan was expanding at this time. Um, That's impressive. Yeah. So he issued transit visas for them so that they could travel. And he did that despite the fact that he was risking both his career and his family's lives. Like, wow. He was just stamping these documents and like, yeah, you can go, go to Japan, go somewhere. Japan controls, get out of Europe because Germany is going to kill you. Yeah. And so he was recognized by Israel as a, Righteous Among the Nations for his actions in 1985. About one year before his death. So, hey, he got to see his own award. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, he is probably what I would argue as the... I don't want to say most important, but most influential Japanese Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, you do have other people like um, Shusaku Endo, who was a Catholic Japanese writer. If you've watched the movie Silence, he wrote the novel that that was based on, which don't think just because it's historic, it's true. It's historic fiction. It's based off of true events. The people in it are based off of actual historical figures. Yes, it's taking liberties with historical events. Yeah. Still, Um, I think, worth a watch because it is entertaining in Martin Scorsese. Note, Andre, I know you're going to say, I know you're going to say you don't like Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Andre and I just had a discussion about Scorsese earlier today. Fun. Oh, really? Yeah. But let's get back into it. Um, also, film-wise, you have uh, Toshiro Mifune, who is a or was a Japanese actor. He was Christian. Um, his father was a Christian missionary. Um, hmm. You also have. Uh, God, I just had her name pulled up. Um, you had another Christian. There we go. Ayako Miura. Um, she was a Protestant writer. Um, her most famous or influential work is Shiokari Pass, or as it's known in Japanese, Shiokari Toge. Hmm. Um, I actually have this book. I've just never gotten around to reading it. Like most of my bookshelves. Yeah, that's. I have this problem. Buying books is a lot more fun than reading them. It is. But um, in addition to that, uh, you have also had eight prime ministers who were Christian in Japan. Wow. 
Yeah, one of whom goes all the way back to 1918 to 1921. Dang. Yeah. And three of them were Roman Catholic, five of them were Protestant. Hmm. But times changed and they changed quick. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Not quite as quick as when Christianity was, you know, uh, an offense punishable by death, but quick. Still quicker than Dante was pardoned. That's your measure for everything, isn't it? It's going to be now. Okay. Well, (laughs) that could be the end of the points of covering Christianity in or the history of Christianity in Japan. But, um, is that a, but wait, there's more. Yeah. In a weird way, a really Uh, weird way. Okay. Uh, Logan, where do you think Jesus died? Um, well, on the Hill of Calvary, on a cross and then uh, ascended into heaven from somewhere in the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing. He didn't. No? No. Instead of Golgotha. Uh, so someone did die at Golgotha, but it wasn't Jesus. It was his younger brother who has a really strangely Japanese name. Oh, the heresies. <laughs> uh, a strangely Japanese name of Isukiri. <laughs> like strongly, like hard Japanese name compared to Jesus. Right? Very much so. Even, so, even if you go with the Aramaic pronunciation, it's still way different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's this Wait, what was it again? Isukiri. Isukiri and Yeshua. Uh, They they still don't match up. No, I'm not hearing it. So to to go back before I just say, yeah, Jesus died in Japan. um, (laughs) So to go back a bit, there's a small town in... um, it's not in Hokkaido, it's in northern Honshu, which is the main island in Japan. Uh, there's a small town called Shingo. And Shingo is famous because there is a man who said, hey... I have this manuscript of this scroll that was found in the 30s and then mysteriously burned away in the Allied bombings. No, no. Um, but I have this manuscript of it that says that uh, Jesus actually died in Japan. <laughs> and so how the story goes is... Jesus, when he was 21 years old, so it's during the uh, the time skip arc in the Bible, 
the 18 lost years. Can I call it the time skip arc? Is that blasphemous? No. No. Okay, cool. Because that's what it is. It's a time because, skip arc. So from my understanding, the reason for the time skip in the Bible is because in first century Jewish culture, you had to be 30 to become a rabbi and gather a following. Interesting. So everything that happened between him being a kid at the temple preaching and him being 30 is somewhat, you know, irrelevant to the bigger story. Hmm. Makes sense, but still seems a little odd to me. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, when Jesus was 21 years old, he uh, just randomly decided to go to Japan, of all places, to study theology. <laughs> and while he was in Japan, he learned Japanese customs as well as the language. Um, and he was under the tutelage of a great master who lived near Mount Fuji. And when he was 33, he and his brother Isakiri, who just randomly comes into the story, um, they go back to Judea by way of Morocco, of all places. Yeah, no, I know none of this makes sense. Okay. So, God... They, they return to Judea, and Jesus is just like, hey, I need to be crucified. And his little brother, again, Isukiri, is just like, no, I'll do it. <laughs> and so Isukiri is crucified for humanity's sins. And so it's actually really funny. There's a, there's a YouTube channel called Abroad in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. And... He has a video from like a few years ago of him visiting Shingo. And on one of the signs, it's just like his little brother Isukiri casually decided to take his place. So yet Isukiri casually dies for humanity's sins. <laughs> casually. Yeah. He's just, you know, casually crucified. Yep. As one does. But, yeah, th there's no other mention of Isukiri other than he casually dies for humanity's sins in Jesus' place. So is he supposed they to be did like save a full his brother? Ear. Or... They saved his ear. Yeah. Why his ear? <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, back I, to the question, I is he love, supposed to be a full I, brother, or is he like Joseph and Mary's kid, or? I don't know. This story doesn't exist for the brother. He's just like, Jesus is just like, I have to go and die for humanity's sins. Suddenly, brother from the side. No, I'll do it. <laughs> Mm. yeah what a trip and so after that Jesus goes through Asia and eventually arrives in Japan he again he saved his brother's ear and also apparently a lock of his mom's hair 
for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. Because you got to have a Marian relic somewhere in Japan, I guess. Yeah. But he um, goes back to Japan. And he changes his name. So you remember how I said that um, in in the very beginning, call back to a month and a half ago, that the Jesuits vaguely resembled Tengu or other demons. Mm-hmm. So Jesus also apparently got that treatment because he was tall oh, and really? he had a uh, the the term in Japan for a Western nose is a high nose. So because Jesus was tall and he had a high nose. Um, they called him Daitenku, which is. But historically speaking, he would have been like what four nine to five foot two. Yeah, but do remember also that it is around this point historically that Japan starts to communicate with China, and China mm-hmm. calls Japan Wa, meaning referring to the people of Japan as short (laughs) so not only are like not only are japanese people at this point short they're shorter than people in china who i'm everyone was short back then jesus was apparently taller but wow so yeah he was called daitenku taro jurai um Daitenku from Dai, which means big, and Tenku from Tengu, which is what the Jesuits looked like. Yeah, big uh, Tengu, which is uh, known for having the long nose. It's mm. they're equivalent they look to like go- they should be in Slipknot. They're equivalent to goblins, I think. Hmm. It, it literally means heavenly dogs, but they're not dogs. Etymology is weird. This is a history podcast, though, oh, so yeah. let's continue on with this weird story of Jesus. <laughs> so uh, he settles in Shingo, and he marries a woman named Miyuko, and they have three daughters. And they have a peaceful life growing garlic at a small farm and he lives until he's 106 years old after which Daitenku died and they left his body on a a hill for four years because that was custom apparently at the time in this area and then they buried his bones and you can go and visit the site where Jesus's bones allegedly are today um Obviously, they've never I w- exhumed this grave. I would laugh so hard if they exhumed it and found out that it was a first century Jewish man. Oh, dude, that would be really weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> what if this is actually true? <laughs> Not a chance, but it would be funny. Yeah, it's... um. Obviously, most Christians have denounced this as b 
being not blasphemous. true. Not true and blasphemous, but I kind of want to go to Shingle. There's nothing wrong with going to check it out. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, because of this story, Shingo is uh, doing pretty well as far as tourism and what that whatnot goes. So it did what it was designed to do. Yeah, um, and although I should note that the um, the manuscript that they have, which is supposedly from when Jesus would have been alive in Japan, he wrote and recorded all this. Um, it's, let's just say Japan didn't really have a written language at the time. Mm. So for it to be written in, uh, what strangely resembles the Japanese dialect for the era of Shing or for the area of Shingo around, the time of the 1930s based on the vocabulary a farmer would know like it, it, it's vaguely similar to all of that <laughs> that i just lift, listed off as opposed so to it's not it's not chinese from 2000 years ago it's not aramaic it's japanese from like the 1930s oh the detail yeah it's it's still a fun theory. Like, what if it is true? It's it's funny, but also, like, you gotta laugh at how lazy the devil is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, at any rate, that is where... God, that's not even... That's just a weird thing to include. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's part of the history in Japan of Christianity. It, it is completely separated from the rest of the history that we've covered, though. Yeah, but... Hence its place at the end of this episode. So France has its history of Mary Magdalene retiring in France and bringing the Holy Grail with her and all of that. You know, Ethiopia claims to have the Ark of the Covenant. Japan claims to have the body of Christ after his brother took the fall for him. There's a few other places that claim to have uh, the tomb of Christ, but I like the Japanese oh, yeah. story the most. It's the most entertaining. It, yeah, it, it definitely has the most character. His random brother appears. <laughs> random fully Japanese with Japanese name brother. It's like young Frankenstein where uh, you have <laughs> Igor and then Igor. Suddenly, yeah. suddenly comes up and like, no, I've always been around. I'm his brother, Igor. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that is the history of Christianity in Japan, at there least to the extent that I was able to research it. Any thoughts, Logan? Well, I definitely learned a lot from this. Oh, yeah. The, the we came full circle at the end with Roroni Kenshin's involvement. Yes. 
Um, oh yeah, that it actually is the thing. Um, it, the Rurouni Kenshin episode revolves around a community of Kakure Kurishitan, who mm. were all murdered, and you have two survivors, and that's where the story arc starts. Watch it; it's good. And if I'm if I'm not wrong, I do also remember a Dutchman. Mm. involved in that story yes uh at the end the dutchman allows for the two leaders of the uh the he allows for the christians to go to the netherlands yes but yeah research for this was painstaking Oh, it sounded like it. Yeah. Um, hence why this had to be done in three parts. And mm. even then, we probably could have done four or five. Easily. Yeah. I mean, we could have done the Shimabara Rebellion in two parts. I wouldn't, oh, yeah. I wouldn't mind in the future going over more of this. I would like to actually talk about this in a discussion episode mm-hmm. um, if anyone wants to guest on that call out to the audience members who know me oh yeah bring it but other than I'd learning i be interested in having Andre back at some point to tell me how wrong I am about Scorsese oh yeah because in discussion episodes, we can do that. <laughs> to a degree, we can do that in these episodes. I mean, I, I went on for like 12 minutes, I think, talking about two completely unrelated religions. Oh, yeah. Well, we spent the introduction talking about mountains. Yeah. And now we're spending the out, the outro of the episode talking about the episode. Yeah good episode hashtag meta <laughs> but at, at any rate other than learning a lot um any spare thoughts in specific uh in specific i'm not too sure um really it was just interesting seeing how a culture completely disconnected completely isolated from what Christianity became in the West, adopted it. I agree. Um, There's actually a museum in, I believe it's Osaka, that I really want to go to. Uh, It has a bunch of artifacts from the era of hidden Christianity. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. I when I first got into researching this topic, I looked it up and I was just like, I want to go. But um, being in the military in Japan, uh, a lot of areas are kind of closed off to me and I cannot go to them. And Mm. Osaka is one of them. Really? Yeah. But in the future, I definitely plan on going. That's a shame. But 
Yeah. Uh, I think that is a good calling point for both this episode and the series. It's been a great series. I'm very proud of what we've done with this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, Up until this point, at least, this is basically our magnum opus. Oh, yeah. Longest series, most amount of research. And I think I can say we've gotten a lot better in production than we used to be. For sure. Also, shout out to the audience for making these past two weeks our most successful weeks ever. Thank you. It means a lot. Um, shout out to all of our listeners uh, Japan and America it's it's expected that's where the two of us live but uh, we have listeners in uh, the UK, Belgium France uh, I think we had one listener in Israel uh, Ireland, yeah. Colombia and again I say the Netherlands sorry Dutch people <laughs> I meant no insult. He Don't hate me. He meant no harm. It just came off sounding a little disingenuous there. I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. The other country, Sweden. Sweden. Yeah, that's... Um, I have all of y'all's data. Not like that. I just know where you are if you listen to us. He's the NSA. I'm not quite at that level. It won't even tell me where <laughs> in. No, like, it, it legit just shows your flags and that's it. Yeah. I I can't even get like down to the city in Japan. It only goes down the, to the prefecture level. <laughs> so I have Kanagawa, Tokyo, and Saitama. I don't know who's listening in Saitama, but thank you. Yeah. Thank we you hope all. You enjoyed it. So, as always, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email uh, for suggestions, corrections. If you just want a shout out, I'm fine with giving shout outs. Mm-hmm. Um, Check us out on Facebook. Yep. Uh, the email is cognitive history podcast at gmail.com. And on Facebook, cognitive history. Still can't get that username. I'm I'm gunning for it every day. We'll get there. At some point. One day we'll be important enough to make Facebook give us a username. Yes. That's the goal. Other than talking about history, that's the goal for now. That's the goal. We have high hopes here. Oh, yes. And, yeah. Yeah. That is uh, the end of the episode. I guess we'll, uh, we'll be back next week with our conversation episode. Oh, yeah. Um, that is a thing that we need to mention. In two weeks, I'm going to be on vacation. So, like, even though I'm, I don't really plan on doing any traveling, I'm going to be in vacation mode. Not. Poor old Kevin wore himself out. 
doing all the research for these three episodes and, and climbing a mountain and whatnot. Yeah, but he needs a break from my annoyance. Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna be in vacation mode, not podcast mode. So to cover the fact that we we would be missing a week from the normal schedule, we are going to be moving the next discussion episode to next week. So yep. you can you can still have your fix, just not in the regular time frame. If you want to wait a week to listen to it, we still get the lessons from that. I mean, yeah, we don't want to disrupt your schedule. It's all it's all for you. Just listen to old episodes again. Yeah. Well, not old. Not 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 too old. After we get better production value, listen from there. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, so and then I think at that point we're going to um, continue from there with the two week schedule. So next week we'll have an episode, and then two weeks after that we'll have an episode. Yes. But yeah, so that's all the stuff we have to put out. Um, plug the pluggables. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, Logan, I hope you have a good week. You as well. And audience, again, thank you for listening. Please get in touch. I would like to get an email. Please do. And, and remember, I do not have anything against the Dutch. I'm going to be apologizing for that one for a while, buddy. Yeah, probably. I, I thoroughly appreciate you listening been fun hope you've enjoyed this and everyone have a good week weekend again i don't know when i'm going to actually publish this last time i said it was monday but i published it the same night so we'll see a wild card business you never know at any rate have a good one And we will catch you at the next episode. See you in a week. Out.